Hello, I'm Ken Bruce. I appeared as a guest on My Time Capsule, and after that I had to give up a job I'd had for 46 years. <sighs> anyway, they want me to tell you that they've started a thing called Acast Plus, where for a small monthly fee you can get the podcast ad-free. For me, I think the ad's are the best thing in it. That Fenton Stevens, he does drone on a bit. Anyway, whatever you like, do something and have a go at it. ACAS Plus, my time capsule. Thanks, Ken. Charming. Anyway, to get my time capsule ad-free and for a bonus my time capsule, the debrief episode every week, subscribe to ACAS Plus. Details in the description of this episode. Thanks. Bloody Ken Bruce, what a cheek. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. My name's Mike Fenton-Stevens, and My Time Capsule, and if you know this bit, you can always skip forward a bit, is the podcast where... Have they gone? Good. We're alone. The treasure is buried in... Oh, no, no, sorry, one of them's still listening. I'll tell you later. My Time Capsule is where people choose five things from any time in their life to have in a time capsule, preserved and as good as new. Four things they cherish, and one thing they are glad is buried in the ground, so that they never have to think about it again. My guest in this episode is the comedian, writer, and producer, Ashley Blaker, recently heard on his Radio 4 series, Ashley Blaker, 6.5 Children. He's most famous for his work with his schoolmate, Matt Lucas, and of course, David Walliams, including Rock Profiles and Little Britain, which he produced, and the Matt Lucas Awards, which he also co-created and co-wrote. As a stand-up, Ashley's performed all over the world, including Off-Broadway and the Edinburgh Fringe, where he'll soon be seen again prior to his national tour in his new show, Normal Schmormal, which is also available as a book. Both the book and the stage show are about the joys of parenting children with special needs, which Ashley knows a lot about, obviously, and talks about in this podcast, thankfully. Ashley has worked with a who's who of British comedy and a number of performers who are featured in the book Who's He, like me, and is the first Orthodox Jewish comedian to be given his own BBC series. So let's find out the five things he's chosen from his life to put in his time capsule, shall we? Here is... Ashley Blaker. My son is the producer of this podcast, so we work together on it, which is really lovely. But when he was a teenage boy, our absolute obsession was watching rock profiles. I mean, I can quote great chunks of it. We were laughing this morning at the fact of Barry Gibb having a tail and being a lion. It just made me laugh so much. So, do you know what's really funny is that I was thinking ahead of this today, I was thinking mm. about the heebie-jeebies last night, and I didn't put two and two together thinking, oh, yeah, I once was involved in the heebie-jeebie <laughs> thing. I just kind of hadn't even thought about it. To me, that's the definitive, but I'd actually completely forgotten about that, yeah. Yours, I think, is possibly the funniest. As a song, we win, yeah, but yeah. as a parody, very funny. It's become part of our family language, that if we ever see anybody sort of clearly denying something that's true, so the Boris Johnsons of this world, we all turn to each other and say, we're not splitting up, we're not splitting up, we're not, we're not, no way we're splitting up, we're not, we're splitting up. Anybody who's never seen rock profiles wouldn't have the faintest idea that that's supposed to be boy's own. The one line that I actually find myself sometimes saying 
is in the Shirley Bassey and Tom Jones episode. <laughs> yes. There's this running joke about Tom Jones going, like Elvis likes it. Elvis said I was the greatest. <laughs> and he goes, you met Elvis? Yes, uh, a Welsh singer, war denim, <laughs> big in the 80s. Game, he goes, that's Shane Stephen. And he goes, oh. Still. Shaky, said I was good. <laughs> and I don't know why, but for some reason, I just sometimes just think of that and, and just go, still. Said I was good. <laughs> yes. Anyway, Ashley, it's great to see you, and it's lovely to have you on my time capsule. Thank you for having me. So let's explore the things you've chosen to put into a time capsule, the five things you've picked, and uh, see where that takes us. Okay. So what's the first thing you've chosen? So the first thing I have chosen to put in my time capsule is my children, principally because I know where they are, and, <laughs> I'd have, and I then have no risk of losing them. Because <laughs> um, they're there. Where are where are they? They're in the time capsule. Fine, good, good. Do mm. I have to pick them up from a party on Saturday night? No, because they're in the time capsule. Do <laughs> I have to drive my eldest to uh, his job at Heathrow Airport this morning at five a.m.? No, he's in the time capsule. He can't go to work. Right. <laughs> Do I have to wait for the school bus to come and and pick up our daughter and take her to special? No, she's in the time capsule. It's fine. She's not going to school, so it'd be mm. perfect. And when you have a larger family six children, um, five teens now, officially five teenagers and uh, one who's nine. But um, <laughs> used to go on, on family trips and it would be like taking out a school trip and you'd have to like occasionally stop for a head count yes. and go, where's everybody? Hang on. Where the, and I actually genuinely have done that actually because gone, hang on, have I got everyone? <laughs> Who am I missing? One, two, three, four. <laughs> yeah. So, so why not put them in the time capsule? And actually, I also think, uh, obviously, if they're in a time capsule, they can't disturb me the whole time, which is great. Mm. God, yesterday, I was on a phone call, and it was actually an important phone call. It was about my Edinburgh show, mm. and uh, this is the first plug. The seamlessly worked. <laughs> it's brilliant. Yeah. It was, uh, I was talking to Mark Watson, as a comedian, who's producing my Edinburgh show, and my daughter, Zoe, has got Down syndrome. She goes to a special school. The council basically provide transport. So school bus picks up children, picks them up at your house, drops them off. It's very kind of American style, mm. like, you know, we used to be like the Simpsons, but <laughs> not with Otto driving the bus. This bus driver is much safer than Otto. Um, <laughs> anyway, so he arrives back and he's like hooting outside. And I have two sons, Adam and Dylan, are downstairs and they're shouting at me, Dad! Dad, the bus is here. The bus is here. I'm on, I'm on the phone. Number one, anyway, I'm on the phone. But even if I wasn't on the phone, you're by the door. Why aren't you opening the door and going to get her? This is insane. I cannot actually believe your laziness that you'd rather just shout out at me. So, yeah, so put them in the time capsule. That's fine. Future generations will find them interesting. Mm-hmm. I mean, future generations will obviously already have the Radio 4 series, second plug, <laughs> that they'll be able to enjoy. But uh, but opening up the time capsule, we actually say, oh, we heard about them on BBC Sounds, and we've listened to them, but we didn't believe it was true. Yeah, uh, Of course, they'll have aged in this time capsule. <laughs> true. But unless it's one of those things like in Planet of the Apes, the original, where you go in the capsule and Charlton Heston doesn't age at all. Do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yes. I yeah. do. And then that the one woman on board, there's been some crack in the glass and she's aged horribly. She's now like this kind of desiccated corpse. And because uh, she's aged. It's really weird, by the way. This is a really random thought yeah. that I've never had before. So at the start of uh, Let Alone Said It Out Loud, and I might regret it, 
But this is the original Planet of the Apes film since 1968 or 69. Mm-hmm. Charlton Heston travels into space and don't want to spoil it for anyone, but God, if you haven't seen it by now, <laughs> I mean, it ends up actually, it's the planet Earth, yes. thousands of years in the future. Anyway, so there's four of them on board this ship. Mm. Three men and this woman who dies because she ages because of a crack in the kind of capsule, right? Yeah. And then he says afterwards something like, she was going to be Eve and we would have like started a new kind of... Well, the three of them... Exactly. That's what I was thinking. What was going... I mean, sexually, how was this working? I don't know if I've watched... I've clearly watched uh, too much pornography. But, like, what... Was this some kind of, like, group thing going on? Three guys and a guy? I don't know. I don't know if there's been pre-planned. Don't know. Uh, And it just popped into my head, and I probably shouldn't have done. But, yes, so uh, there you go. I I thought they'd find them interesting. And um, they are interesting. God, I've just written a three, another plug, 384-page book about my children. So they are interesting. They have enough stories to fill a book. Mm. And I'd like future generations to see them as they are now. Yes. Uh, preserve what they're like. In a way, that's actually the, the fun thing about, um, I suppose, writing a book about your children or whatever, is that it does kind of preserve them in a certain time. Mm. Because they do. Obviously, you've got children and and, uh, and grandchildren. And, you know, they grow up and you kind of forget what they were like. Um, Yeah. You know, people who listen to my shows, uh, who listened to the the first series of 6.5 Children, always assume, like, I've got much younger children because I talk about them when they were younger. But, Mm. you know, they do grow up. Mm. When we were recording the new series, actually, both Kieran Hodgson and Rosie Holt appear playing other roles in the show. They were both saying to me, God, how are you going to manage it? Like, how do you manage Edinburgh? Like, leaving the kids for a month. You know, that's like, wow, that's, you know, that's a big childcare uh, uh, responsibility. And you said it's the only reason I'm doing it. Well, <laughs> firstly, exactly. I mean, that's, <laughs> I'd rather stand in the rain handing out flyers to strangers for a month <laughs> than have to look after the kids. But no, I was saying, look, you do realise my eldest son is 19. Mm. No, he's about to turn 19. My second son is about to turn 18. The jobs involved are the real effort is in is like driving them around. Oh, actually, look, in fairness, so we had four sons and then we adopted a daughter with Down syndrome. Mm. We adopted her when she was two. She's now 14. Yes, I was have to remember everyone's ages. <laughs> so, yes, yeah, so she's 14. She'll be 15 in September. But I mean, she's probably got, I would say, the mental age of like a four-year-old, I would say, mm. four or five. And she doesn't age. I mean, she's not. I mean, which is lovely in many ways. Like, there's a glorious innocence about her. Because I know what my third son, what he's, he's got a lot of female friends. I know what they're like. Yeah. And they're nothing like our daughter. It is quite extraordinary what she's like. She's not on Snapchat. She not become obsessed with her weight. She wouldn't know Harry Styles if he sat down at our kitchen table. <laughs> I've never had to have a sit down and talk to her about drugs or boys or anything. No. It really is an incredible innocence, which I love. I mean, that's my whole thing, really. And, and the reason I, I wrote this book is that I'm not here to, like, moan about having children with special needs. It's certainly, it's, a, it's, it's called Normal Schmormal, My Occasionally Helpful Guide to Raising Kids with Special Needs. Mm. And while it certainly doesn't shirk away from the challenges, and there are huge challenges, and I talk about them, I really wanted to celebrate our children because while our family life might not be 
quote, normal, mm. I wouldn't have it any other way. And the children with special needs make it what it is. Yeah. And I think we, so there you go. So I, so yes, I, I absolutely love the fact that she's, she kind of has preserved in age. I don't need to put her in a time capsule. Because <laughs> I kind of feel she did develop quite a lot. She had a kind of spurt, I think, of like acquiring language. Her reading's very good, actually. Her reading is very good. But um, I think she has plateaued a bit. And I, I, I wonder what, where she will be able to get to. Yes. Well, you do that with all children with special needs. You sort of try to guess what their future might be. But I have an 11-year-old grandson who is autistic and uh, he has a lot of the symptoms that you associate with autism. Right. Uh, So he, you know... He like, likes his food kept separately. He's very overwhelmed by smells. He doesn't like loud noises. He likes things to be predictable. Yes. There's a chapter in, in the... So it's an A to Z, and there's one chapter about sensory needs called Your Smell is Too Loud for My Eyes. <laughs> and I think that yeah. that you, you're, what you're talking about there reminds me of uh, that. That's exactly yeah. the situation, often. Even though it is uh, you know, a comic memoir mm-hmm. um, as well, It certainly doesn't shirk away from those challenges, and hopefully there is some advice about finding help and uh, finding the right people to get on your side. There are lawyers that work pro bono and this kind of thing. There's certainly parent advocates. Parent advocates I describe as like the A-team of the special needs world, but they're easier to find because they're not based in the Los Angeles underground. (laughs) So, uh, But yes, it's about finding the resources out there that... um, so we had such issues, particularly with my eldest son. So yes, I have a chapter called D is for Diagnosis Autism. We talk about that, the getting the diagnosis, which I think is the big step. Mm-hmm. That's the first big step is actually about getting diagnosis. So I've got so I've got two children, and three of them have a diagnosis, two autism and ADHD, and one with uh, Down syndrome. Mm. Now, one of my son, my fourth son, Edward, I would say he had more classic autistic traits than my other two put together. Mm. However, he isn't diagnosed. We once mentioned him and described some of his behaviors to my eldest psychiatrist. And he, he said, look, you could, I'm happy to assess him, but I don't know if anyone would frankly believe you that you've got a fourth child. Especially. <laughs> and the thing is, in all seriousness, he's not got any learning difficulties. There is a difference mm. between having autism, ADHD, and actually having a learning difficulty. He didn't have any learning difficulties. I don't think he actually, he's doing moderately well in school. Yes, he's completely obsessed with dinosaurs and Lego and Marvel movies. Mm-hmm. He buys like a Lego set. He'll ask us, so we'll buy something on like Amazon or whatever. And then he says, can you forward me the email? And he just wants to stare at the email <laughs> of the confirmation. And then he tracks the delivery driver yeah. in a way that makes me think that we're basically raising a stalker. For the future. <laughs> it's horrendous. He's, it's just absolutely awful. But you know what? I don't think he needs a label. And that's the thing. Now, in future life, now look, lots of, um, lots of people get uh, diagnosed in adult life. Mm-hmm. And it may be that in adult life he wants to pursue that maybe he doesn't yeah maybe it will help him maybe it won't but not everything needs a label no i I always say this is a bit like um comedy shows on radio 4 some comedy shows on radio 4 need the label of being multi-award winning my (laughs) show doesn't need that it doesn't need it no just doesn't need it it obviously could be if it wanted to be 
Yeah, the skewer needs it. The skewer needs it. I don't need it. I'm very happy just to be. It's just that doesn't need. And I think it's very bold of you not to put million-selling book on the cover. Exactly. You don't need to do that. Don't need it. Don't need it. I don't need it. Actually, there's this. Um, I was. Talks about this in in the um actually maybe I talk about this in the book as well but certainly in my Edinburgh show so we the story of how we adopted uh, Zoe's I mean it's an extraordinary story I mean it's it's um it was basically we had four sons at the time and one night I was looking through this local paper and saw this advert no that said yes from the London Borough of Hackney that said opt to adopt Zoe is quote simply beautiful could you be the family for her. And this whole process started, and she ended up moving in with us like a year later. Mm. But it says, Zoe is, quote, simply beautiful. No source. Now, the pedant in me is furious when I see things like that. <laughs> you can't put simply beautiful, no quote. Who's saying it? I can't, you can't put, I can't put on my Edinburgh show, utter genius, <laughs> without someone saying it. <laughs> Otherwise, it's meaningless. It's, it's just you. Yeah, so exactly, <laughs> utter genius. I feel that someone needs to be in touch with the London Borough of Hackney and explain this point. Yes. If you're going to use a pull quote, give the source. <laughs> so, yeah, anyway, so we were, I was saying, so, um, this terrible experience we had with my eldest. So basically what actually triggered it with him, you know, obviously new parents didn't really know all the signs, didn't really know what you're looking out for. But at about 18 months old, he had severe speech delay, mm. no speech at all really, and uh, a very limited diet. Yep. And we were worried, and that led to him being assessed, and I can't remember how long after his third birthday he was had the official diagnosis of autism and ADHD. Mm. But during that period, I mean, God, it was so difficult. It was so challenging. He was so difficult to manage. Uh, it was kind of wild force of nature without any language. He was particularly like frustrated. He'd yeah, yeah. run off. He'd run. He once ran into like a butcher's shop and like he ran behind the counter where they're like slicing meat. Oh, and I had to like jump over and pull him out before he got turned into Carpaccio. Yeah. We had visitors in our house the whole time assessing him. My memory of this period was that every time I looked up, there was somebody looking at him playing and shaking their head, uh. and making tutting sounds. Kind of like when you have a build around to look at a shit job you want them to fix. <laughs> Just kind of going, disordered speech, no social skills, no language. What sort of cowboy brought this child up? Yeah. He? This is going to cost you, mate. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's basically what it was. And there's another chapter called End is for No Room at the Inn which is about our struggles to then actually get him into a school. Mm. Because schools, as you say, are legally required to follow a certain procedures and what have you. And this school was absolutely determined to keep our child out. In the end, it went to the very top. It was actually the Secretary of State, Ed Bulls, who finally decided this school had to shut the fuck up and take our son. Good. And so Ed Bulls, you know, this is the man who... One of his great claims to fame is that he once tweeted the word Ed Bulls. <laughs> and so, you know, that. So the, yes. I, think it was the, I think it was on the 28th of April, I think. Is, and so that, that day is now known as Ed Bulls Day. And people celebrate it every year. But he'll always be a hero to me because he made this school take us on. And among their claims, I saw the paperwork that they submitted, right? So I worked in TV at the time. I was a producer and writer of television. We met years ago mm. doing something together. 
Anyway, they wrote, I, pro- I promise you this is true. This will sound made up. I promise this is true. They claimed that we were only trying to get our son into school because they knew I worked on TV. They thought that I was going to send him to school wearing covert cameras <laughs> to film a documentary about the treatment of children with special needs in London schools. You go, I mean, he's he's like a barely verbal autistic child. You think he's the new Donald McIntyre or Roger Cook? (laughs) And I mean, I did, yes, I worked in TV, but I was writing knob gags for Graham Norton. I wasn't (laughs) the investigative journalist. I mean, before we started recording, we were talking about Rock Profile, which I produced and and partly wrote. And One of my favourite comedies of all time. Well, that's very kind of you, but it, was, it definitely wasn't investigative journalism. No. I mean, <laughs> Barry Gibb did not have a tail. <laughs> oh, no, you spoiled it now. Exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, I don't know. It's extraordinary. So, yes, they, the schools, they will try and do what they can get away with. Some of them. However, I will say this. Once he got in, and once he... So, he, so eventually, he did get into the school mm-hmm. and started, and he stayed until... You know, he went from whatever age that was, four, all the way through to uh, 11, to the end of primary school. He had a very happy time there. Uh, he made some good friends. We really built bridges, actually. And the mm. school were there. He called us in and said, like, let's start again then. Let's wipe the slate clean start again. And, yeah, you do have to sometimes, I think, stop yourself in your tracks and go, right, are we point scoring here mm. or are we doing something for the best of our child? And I do think that's some really important advice. It's important advice to granddads because I'm constantly saying, sue them, sue them, take them to court. I'll pay for it. Come on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. God, you'll pay for it. That's very nice of you. You don't <laughs> even, you even, you even go for the pro bono lawyers. <laughs> Those only fools and horses residuals of that. <laughs> keep coming in. They just keep, keep pouring in. in. And, and, I don't and know and what to do with it. <laughs> yeah. So I think uh, you do... Look, Gemma and I are both the kind of people who don't like losing. But you do sometimes have to go, hang on. Is this for me? And is this for my ego? And is this for me to say, yep, I won and got one over on them? Or is this actually for the benefit of your child? Because when we were having this fight with the school, and it really was the most miserable period, yeah, it went on for months and months and months. Lots of people said to us, why are you doing this? They don't want you. And they don't want your child. Why would you want your child to go to a school mm. where they don't want him? This is completely stupid. So we did really think about this. And the reason was because we, we thought, we 100% believed that it was the right place for him, that it was an excellent school, and that they had had other children before with similar diagnoses and that it was the right place if we could just get the the deal over the line. Mm. And that is why once then he started, we didn't try and then micromanage. He went, no, no, you do what you do because right. we, we fought for this because we believed in you. So now let's do it. Let's mend fences. And I know I said before, let's build bridges. But you know what? Mending fences is easier to build. <laughs> Always easier to mend something than to build something from scratch. Yes, true. Fences are smaller. So don't bother building bridges, mend fences instead. I'll take that advice from you. That's good advice. Thank you very much. Ashley, we're going to put your children into the time capsule as your first item. Excellent. Lovely. So let's find out what number two is. At number two, I'm going to put in uh, my Liverpool season ticket. Oh, brilliant. So you go up to Liverpool to watch them play regularly. There was one 10-year period where I missed something like four games, home, away, Europe. The anecdote I always tell, right, but this is the level of commitment. Listeners can tell 
from my very strong Scouse accent. <laughs> yeah, I didn't grow up. I was I grew up in London, a uh, you know, a, a glory hunting Liverpool fan. But then had to wait a long time for that to come back. But, well, quite exactly. And I said, well, yeah, I was born in seventy five. So by the time I actually started really going to the games, like really going uh, home away, were like the start of the wilderness years. Because Liverpool won the league in nineteen ninety and mm. didn't win it again until a couple of years ago. Anyway, Liverpool were playing. They played a friendly mid-season away at Bournemouth. It was for the centenary. And I got a phone call from the Liverpool ticket office who said, we're playing this game. We just want to know, will you come? <laughs> and I said, oh, um, I said, is my friend Edward? He's from Warrington. He's sitting next to him. He said, is Edward going? He said, yeah, we've just called him. He says, he'll go if you go. <laughs> and then I went to this game. And I was dating at the time the woman who is now the mother of all of these children. <laughs> and she worked at the time in a school, and she had a colleague called Phil, who was a big Nottingham Forest supporter. And she had told him, I think, she must have told him, actually, he's gone to this game at Bournemouth tonight. So the next day, he said to her, look, I've, I just, he took her to one side and said, look, I think Ashley's lying to you because uh, Liverpool didn't play Bournemouth last night. <laughs> I was going to games that were so obscure, newspapers didn't know about <laughs> They won 4-0. Richie Partridge, I remember, scored the first goal, and he barely, I don't know if he ever played a single game for the first team, apart from that. So was it that knowledge that saved your relationship when your wife-to-be quizzed you? So what was this no, game? No, I didn't know it was a good match ticket. Definitely. No, she did well enough at the time to go, like, no, no, he'd go, like, he'd go to the reserves if he could. He'd go, like, if they brought back the reserves. I mean, God, I was completely obsessed with, mm. you know, it's, look, I'm, I'm one of these people, I'm completely all or nothing. I like, you get into Liverpool, I've got to do that to the nth degree. I got, at one point, I got into Orthodox Judaism, I've got to do that to the end. I can't. I can't just go to synagogue once or twice. I have to, I'll, I'll do it really fully. Mm. I've got that same hyperfixations that you'll see in uh, my fourth son Edward. It was the, his Lego and his and, and his dinosaurs and whatever. And he's tracking the delivery and man. He's yeah. Tracking the delivery man. And everything. <laughs> you know, I've got that worse than anyone. But the funny thing is, is like once you become one of the bases. Mm. People assume then you go to everything. Because I remember there was this bloke, I think his name's Jacko. I never found out he was person. He was one of the real, like, urchins. Urchins are like the firm, mm. the headhunters. I was all on, like, nodding terms. We used to, Edward and I used to call him my nodding mate because he'd see me and he'd give me a nod. A nod of, like, you know that nod you give of someone of respect, like, you're all right, mate. Yeah, you're yeah. all right. I remember seeing him in Cardiff. And he was completely, he was he was quite pissed. And he comes and he goes, ah, oh, mate, he goes, you, I've seen you fucking, I've seen you everywhere. You're, I remember seeing you in Finland, you in Kaisushi Lati. And I was thinking, no, I wasn't. I'm, I'm, I remember the game you're talking about. I was 17, I was in 92. I wasn't, I was at school. But he, in his mind, he thought I was everyone I went along with it. Ubiquitous. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I was just like, I'm always there. Yeah. What's your best game? I mean, obviously, things like the 2005 European Cup final in Istanbul. But I went to a game in um, in Monaco. They do every year the European Super Cup. And Liverpool were playing Bayern Munich. This would have been 2001. It was a Friday night in Monaco. So, I mean, what a great place to go to Monaco. And had a day trip there. Took out like a, a boat <laughs> with all these German fans. This huge German guy comes up to me. I think, oh, God, what's going to happen? And uh, he just puts his arm around me and he goes, 
You and me, we friends. <laughs> I like beer. You like beer. I hate Man U. You hate Man U. <laughs> and we were like, yeah. yeah. And, like, and that was his kind of thing. And, and you have to you find that way to bond with people. Yes. I watched the, uh, the 1999 European Cup final oh, yeah. uh, with a load of uh, Bayern Munich fans. Oh, really? Mm. So at the moment, I want one lovely job I do at the moment is uh, I was writing on Fantasy Football League, the reboot of Fantasy mm. Football League on Sky, which is just basically a couple of days a week of me, Ellis James, Matt Lucas, and a couple of other writers, Tom <laughs> Parry, Tom Crane, just sitting in a room chatting football. But I was saying this story that, about how um, Lennart Johansson, who was the head of UEFA at the time, at 1-0 to Bayern Munich, got into the elevator at the top level where they're in the posh seats to go down to pitch level to give the trophy to Bayern Munich. Yes. Gets down to the bottom of the elevator and they said, yeah, there's been a goal while you're in the elevator. You need to go back up. Gets back up the elevator. <laughs> gets to the top of the elevator. They go, yeah, there's been another goal. You've got to go back down again. <laughs> give it to Miss Man United. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like Liverpool. I'm a Man United supporter, but I enjoy watching Liverpool play. I really wish right, right. that Jurgen Klopp were Man United's manager. Yeah, there's yeah, all yeah. sorts of things about it. And I admire their history and the fact that they've done it. And I'm not one of those football fans who hates other teams. You're not a true football fan then, in my mind. Probably Michael. not. I, I feel the hatred is, is the most important part of it. I, think. <laughs> I was once on a train as a very young man coming down from Liverpool on a Saturday morning and I walked through the carriages to go to the buffet bar and one carriage turned out to be the carriage that the Liverpool football team were in. Wow. They were just all travelling down to London on the train but they had an area booked out. But there were empty seats. So on the way back, I sort of thought, just sit down here. They don't seem to be reserved. I sat down with them. And I ended up yeah. having a chat with Emlyn Hughes. Right. Was he nice? Very nice. Yeah. Completely normal. And hadn't quite got to that point where it would seem odd for them to talk to normal people. Well, it's money, I suppose. It's changed it all, hasn't it, really? Mm. I mean, but, um, I mean, amazing player. Mm. But he did have, like, a mixed reputation. But when I was a producer at the BBC... We, you, you know, you have to do like training courses and safety courses every year, and they would always talk about the same things. They would talk obviously about the tragedy of you know the Noel Edmonds show and this thing and that thing, whatever. Uh, but there was a program, really, really good series on TV called Match of the Seventies. Right? Yeah, in the nineteen seventy-seven episode, they talk about a famous FA Cup semi-final between Liverpool and Everton the winner of which would play Man United in the FA Cup final, yeah. which Man United won. Anyway, there's a very controversial incident in the semi-final when Everton believe they scored a last-minute goal and it's not given. The referee, who was Clive Thomas, doesn't give it. And to this day, bitter Evertonians who are old enough will still go on about it. Even probably a 10-year-old Evertonian has had it drilled into them. <laughs> Clive Thomas, he robbed us. What was wrong with that goal? Anyway, so Emily Shoes appears as a Vox Pop talking head on the show and he goes, oh, I was on holiday in uh, Marbella and Clive Thomas was there and uh, we were playing golf together and I said to him, oh, Clive, that game, eh? 77, eh? You remember that? And Clive Thomas said to me, oh, yeah, Emily, oh, God, I made a big mistake that day, didn't I? Oh. So the next week, and I remember this at the time, as watching this program, the next week's episode ends with an apology to Clive Thomas. <laughs> <laughs> they say on this training course, they told us, Clive Thomas had seen this, he gets in touch with the BBC, the producer of the show gets in touch with Emily Shoes, 
And says Clive Thomas is denying this. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what do you say, Emily? And, and, and Emily, she's went, oh, yeah, I just made that up. <laughs> goes, what? He goes, yeah, I just thought it sounded good for the show. Yeah. Oh, right. That's not really how TV works. <laughs> so obviously they're telling you this because they're saying, you know, if you ever produce a, a show where a guest says something, please double check. <laughs> yes, this please. Is true, <laughs> uh, because otherwise you might get sued and it's the productions that's going to get into trouble. Mm. But yeah, so Malupal seems to get, uh, it's brought a lot of joy and the, the, the real fun is not, you know, all the, the games I could bore you with going, oh, there was a game in, I went to in 2001 when Gary McAllister scored a last minute free kick. Like that's, <laughs> it's the fun of the going and the funny thing is actually, this one of the reasons I actually stopped going among other reasons, obviously children, mm. so I became very religious for a time as well. But it was the traffic would be so awful. In a way, my mood would be completely affected by the traffic. There was a game at Old Trafford in, I can't remember what year it would have been, probably about 2002, 2003, when Liverpool lost 4-0. They'd had a man sent off in the very first minute, Sammy Hoppy, and they lost 4-0. At 3-0, with about 15, 20 minutes to go, I went, I never did this, but I went, oh, God, we're 3-0 down with 10 men, I'm going. <laughs> and I got back, I did Old Trafford to London in like two hours. Blimey. By the time I got home, I was so jubilant at the fact that I had the greatest drive out of Manchester. I mean, normally it takes me an hour just to get out from, from the area of the ground. Whereas other times I could have seen the greatest victory ever. But I've sat in so much traffic by the time I got home, I'm in a completely foul mood. So my mood's completely unaffected by the game. I didn't care about the game. All I cared about was the result, not the result of the game, the result of how long the trip took. <laughs> probably when it's time to stop. That's probably when it's yeah. time to stop. But that's actually what I found. That actually, it's the going. So that's why we like uh, it's you know, and it's one thing. Uh, you know, I, I, look, I watch every game, no matter what time, wh- when it is, I'm, I'm wherever I am in the world. Mm. Um, always make sure you watch every game and uh, got all the the illegal streams and all that kind of stuff. To even if the game's <laughs> not on TV, it's it's on in our TV. You know. <laughs> Fantastic. All right. That's your second thing then, Ashley. Yeah. That goes in. Right. So number three, what's that? Okay, I hope you're having fun so far. We're going to pause here for a moment for some adverts. Unless you subscribe to this podcast on Acast Plus, in which case this interruption hasn't even happened as you get this podcast ad-free. For the rest of us, back in a minute. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about Wix. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? 
Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back. Right, let's find out what else Ashley Blaker has in his time capsule. Number three, I'm going to put in, it's my MPhil, Master's and Doctoral Research. I was actually doing a PhD and I got bored of it and wrote up for an MPhil. Right. But I, I feel I, various reasons for putting this in. I think partly I wanted to tell listeners that I did this. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, you are the only person I know who's graduated from both Oxford and Cambridge. It's true. Well, like, okay, yeah, done the double. Done the double. Um, it's impressive. Yeah, done the double. <laughs> so, yes, I was an undergraduate at Oxford, and I went to Cambridge and did uh, to do. The reason I went, actually, it wasn't like to just go, oh, I've done one, I'll do the other one. Um, there was genuinely a historian I really wanted to work with. Mm. I thought he is the man for me. He's the best person. Is that what your MPhil was in, in history? Yes, yeah. I did history at Oxford, and my tutor at Keyboard College Oxford, Ian Archer, said to me, you should go and learn with John Morrill at Cambridge. Mm. It was like Obi-Wan when he says to uh, (laughs) Luke Skywalker, you need to go to the Dagobah system learn with Yoda. And it was like that. It was like you, he taught, and he, he actually, he had taught him and he it was like, you know, I was his Padawan. You now go to him. <laughs> that was what I went. My weirdly obsessive life. And, and my life is just a series of weird obsessions. So I had done stand up as a 16 year old. I was doing, I was on the circuit at 16. Wow. Yeah. It's extraordinary. What happened was I was at school with, I went to a school called Haberdashers mm-hmm. in North London, which has had so many comedians. I, I think my like, claim to fame is that I'm the 15th funniest person to ever go to have <laughs> It's famous for it, got, isn't it? Yeah, it's extraordinary. Sasha Baron Cohen, Sasha Baron David Cohen, yeah. oh, right. Robert yeah. Popper, yeah. Mm. Uh, Matt Lucas, Matt Lucas, David Tyler, who you would know, do, who yeah. produced Radioactive. Yes. There's a, a good friend of mine called Steve Hall, who's in We Are Clang, in Vegas Vegas stand-up. Mm. There's a whole load, a whole load. Uh, one of the pin... Right. Much younger than me, but one of those guys. Very funny. They are very funny. Anyway, so I was at school with Matt Lucas. That's why I'm telling you this. So Matt was next in the year above me. He did a comedy course with Ivor Dembina. And he, he rang me one day and said, I'm going to start doing open spots. We should do it together. Not like as a double act, but like mm. do it at the same time. We can compare notes, might have you. And back in those days, I always tell this to younger stand-ups, they just can't believe it. Nowadays, right, if you want to be an open spot, so there's an open mic circuit, you've got to send videos, you've got to do this, it takes years to even get that. Back in those days, you bought time out, chuckle club, you, you ring up, you speak to Eugene Cheese, I said, can I have an open spot? Um, can you do two weeks time? Yes, fine, done. See you then. <laughs> and it was literally like that. Yeah. So I was doing these gigs I would say I was really brilliant for a 16-year-old, mm-hmm. but 
not by any real stand. <laughs> Sometimes I would absolutely storm it. And I, I was doing paid tents. I mean, I got paid to pay tents. I did some, I was like, I remember one of my first gigs went absolutely amazingly. I absolutely stormed it. I was on the bill with, it was me, Richard Morton, Rona Cameron, mm. and uh, Lee Evans. Good Lord. Not a bad, li- not a bad <laughs> lineup. Yeah, extraordinary. Extraordinary lineup. And, uh, you know, and they were going really great. But anyway, a lot of times I'd completely die. And I had no way to turn it around. I think an audience would just decide, who's this little kid? And he can fuck off. <laughs> but I went to Oxford. So I've gone to Oxford. And I thought, people would say to me, oh, what are you going up to, to read? And I would just say, comedy. I guess like, all I wanted to do was do comedy. All those great people that I looked up to and admired, and I was a comedy obsessive. I wanted to be like them. Oxford Review came to realize. And I weirdly, like, so all those people, like the Pythons, all those people who I loved, had gone to Oxford and Cambridge with dreams of becoming lawyers and doctors and what have you, mm. and then got seduced by the comedy. Being a complete nonconformist, I did the reverse. <laughs> so I went up thinking, I'm going to just do comedy, but I became obsessed with the work. <gasps> so, and, and I was very competitive. I didn't want people to do better than me. What have you. So <laughs> I really got into it. So, yeah, so I, I, I really enjoyed, I didn't have a teaching joy in my time at Oxford. I mean, I didn't socialize. Well, I had a, at first I had a car, which is very unusual. Yeah, very and unusual. And I used it the entire time to just drive around the country seeing Liverpool. Uh, I and mean, I never went to lecture. I literally went to two lectures in three years. Mm-hmm. But I, I enjoyed the, the reading, enjoyed the work. So I wanted to do a, a PhD, went to Cambridge. So my PhD title, it's catchy, mm-hmm. is an examination of the doctrine and liturgy of parish clergy removed for Lordianism, 1641 to 1642, <laughs> and their impact on religion in the parishes in the decade before the long parliament. I've just written a book about that. Yes, <laughs> Comedy Gold. That, that's the title of my next Edinburgh show. Um, and at some point, I think I just, I'd kind of underestimated how dull, <laughs> well, not dull, but lonely it is. Yeah. Uh, as a, if you're doing sciences, you're in like the lab, you're working with other people. But this is really, you're on your own. And the whole point of doing this, the essence of the PhD is you're, you, to be accepted, you've got to study something that no one else has. Mm. That's the whole point. Now, in very broad terms, what my PhD was about was causes of the English Civil War. That's what it is. Yeah. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books written about that. But it's about finding a new angle into that subject. So because you're the first person to do it, there's no one really who can help you. So my PhD supervisor, John Morrill, very nice man, he would say to me things like, oh, have you checked these parish records in uh, Lambeth Palace Library or something? Right. i go, oh, okay, right, right. So off I'd trot to London and sit in the Lambeth Palace Library and go, oh, they don't exist anymore. He didn't know. And so you just, you'd spend a lot of your time just pursuing this thing on your own. And so at one point, I just got a bit bored of it and then wrote up, don't want to leave with nothing. So I wrote up, um, it had a limit, I think, of something like 30,000 words. And they said, well, there was re- there would definitely be like a 10% leeway, a bit like with speeding. <laughs> or is that speeding? Or whatever, I, made that up. I might actually have just confused that and, my, and the MPhil. I can't remember. But what I do remember is that I cheated incredibly with the footnotes because they didn't include footnotes. And with the including footnotes, it was something like 59,000. So I'd almost <laughs> literally, literally doubled the word count with the footnotes. <laughs> like Terry Pratchett. Yes, I'd like, but you know what? I'm putting in the time capsule. 
because I want someone to, to read it. It's sat there on my uh, shelf downstairs. And, and it's in the British Library, I should think, isn't it? No, I think only, like a DPhil, doctorate, PhDs. I don't think masters go into the British Library. One of the things that I used to really get excited about, actually, when I was at, uh, was like looking up books in Cambridge at the UL or the Bodleian in, in Oxford, because as some listeners will know, that there's basically four copyright libraries, I think, yeah. that's right. It certainly was the case back then. It's the British Library, Edinburgh, and then Oxford and Cambridge would have, basically what that means is every publication they would have a copy of. Yes. But what many people may not realise, that even includes all magazines and even includes jazz mags. <laughs> and one of the things that I really enjoy while sitting in the university library, the UL in Cambridge, and they had like then a computer, you could look up what they had, <laughs> is you could just look up, you know, old copies of Men Only and Asian <laughs> Babes and Razzle and the Reader's Wives. And there they were, they were listed. And it, the legend has it, the, the university library in Cambridge has got like this big tower. And it was like right at the top of the tower was where they kept the jazz mats. <laughs> that sounds completely apocryphal. Again, I think I might have confused that with the body of Walt Disney. Like they claim that he's like cryogenically frozen, waiting for to be reanimated. What an extraordinary idea. Yeah, so the porn mags are are there. You, you can't get them out. You can't like go, I'll have this copy of, I really need to do research into this copy of Escort magazine <laughs> from 1988. But uh, yeah, they're, they're all there. Lovely. But my MPhil isn't. So we put your MPhil into the time capsule. That's number three. So we've got two left. Okay. Number four is going to be a television set. Mm -hmm. TV has had a, a big role in my life, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, I worked in TV. I, love, I, I spent my entire childhood in front of a TV. I was like the only kid in primary school who didn't go to like Cubs or Judo or anything like that because I just wanted to watch TV. Yeah. I just, just don't want to miss it. I don't want to miss Grange Hill. <laughs> I was the only child in my class who was allowed to stay up late to watch The Young Ones. I was completely obsessed with TV. I worked in TV. But then also, weirdly, when I became very religious for a time, I didn't even own a TV. Right. Because we went, my children went briefly to a school where you weren't even meant to own a TV because very orthodox Jews think like you should kind of like not have like access to this stuff. Basically, it's this weird thing that we kind of like part Amish. Um, <laughs> Amish, but with a slightly more recent cutoff point. Amish, but with taste. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Uh, <laughs> no, no taste. Uh, but uh, just slightly more recent. But yeah, no, we don't like no TV. So it was a weird. So anyway, the upshot of this is, right, is that for years I worked in TV but didn't own a TV. That's extraordinary. I know. It's the oddest. It made my job completely impossible. I was head of development at So Television for a while. Mm. And I was going to, like, pitch for Graham Norton's company. I was, like, pitching shows, but I didn't work in TV. I would go to <laughs> meetings and have to, like, make it up. Like, I have to, like, bluff. And I would go, like, people would... I'd go to a meeting. I'd, like, go and meet someone, like, commissioning editor for something, a, a comedy, whatever. And they'd talk about their recent output. Yeah, Is and it? they'd go, and they'd go to me, so have you seen uh, this? And I'd go, oh, I've got it recorded. Uh, it's on my Sky Plus. I haven't watched it yet. <laughs> I once got caught out, actually. I went to a pitch meeting at the new broadcasting house. Mm-hmm. And the commissioner had to get to me and he said to me, oh, what, what did you make of the glass elevator? I said, well, I haven't seen it yet. It's on Mativo. I'm going to watch it tonight. He said, no, no, glass elevator out. Oh, I see. 
<laughs> yeah, no, the glass. It's a quiz show on uh, Sky. That's great. It's very good, very good show. <laughs> other times, the other thing, this is the trick. I genuinely, this is a trick that you do, right? You memorize one credit, one thing from the credits. They'll say to you, have you seen Black Mirror? <laughs> Oh, yeah. Um, amazing uh, amazing sound effects by Graham Aikman. <laughs> and then they go, fucking hell, this guy knows everything. I want to change the subject because I don't know as much as him. Ah, uh, very good. So, yes, uh, you know, TV, look, you've worked in TV for years. It can be a frustrating business as well. So I'm also, part of me would love to see the back of it. Mm-hmm. It's also brought me some of my biggest frustration, TV. Pitching shows particularly. I mean, I... I I once pitched a show to a commissioning editor at Channel 4. He's not there anymore. A comedy show. Really must stress that. A comedy show. I finished my pitch, and he, he, he looks at me, just shakes his head and goes, nah, it's too funny. <laughs> it's too funny? How, how, how can a comedy show be too... You, like, scared people were going to die laughing. I don't know. I, it's such a frustrating business. So we met, and I think it's the only time we've... Well, certainly in the time we've worked together. Yeah, sadly. I, I, when I was at So Television, mm. we had the opportunity. This was when V. Graham Norton was on Channel 4 Monday through Friday, yeah. on every day. And E4, they had this idea of having on E4 a companion show. Mm. So I came up with this idea with a friend of mine called Paul Putner, a very funny actor and mm-hmm. writer and comedian. The idea was that it was a behind-the-scenes look at how the show is made. Yes. But it's entirely fictitious and scripted you wouldn't be entirely sure about that mm. and i think you were there and you played a kind of producer executive you were basically graham stewart mm. who's like the exec producer of graham's shows when i first had this idea I, one of the people i spoke to about it was graham graham uh, is actually we we use an amazing clip of him on fantasy football league actually probably the nicest man in tv you know and in an industry where most of the people who work in it are absolutely awful. <laughs> he really is. Yeah. And not just, he's not just nice compared to them. He's genuinely an incredibly nice man. Mm. But before he worked in TV, he had been a sports presenter in Scotland. Yeah. And there's two amazing clips. There's one of, of Alex Ferguson having a massive go at him. There's an amazing clip of Jock Wallace having this huge go at him as well <laughs> that we showed. It's really funny. Anyway, so we did this table read. And I, I, they, they weren't interested in it, whatever. But it's just so frustrating. You spend so long developing shows and and then working and then like pitching to start people who are not interested yeah. well actually when i was at so we made this pilot for the bbc and it was a funded pilot they paid for it so which means that the bbc have given us as the program makers you know best part of you know a couple hundred grand of taxpayers money mm-hmm. license fee payers money to make this show so we we delivered the show about a couple of weeks later graham Stewart and i go to have a meeting with two senior execs at the BBC. We walk into the room to find these two women on their knees in front of the TV and video. One of them looks over her shoulder and sees me, and I hear one say to the other, too late, they're here. <laughs> and basically what you realise what's happened, definitely what transpired during this meeting, is that they had spent best part of £200,000 on making a pilot, waited until one minute before the meeting to then watch what we'd done and hadn't watched it. And so we're having a meeting to discuss a pilot they simply haven't watched. You think we've gone to this effort, huge effort, of making a broadcast-quality pilot. You've not fucking watched it. That's extraordinary. Graham Stewart told me this story that right at the start of Channel 5, that he pitched some show. It was a video clip show or something. It was like funny clips or whatever. And it would be hosted by Rich Hall. 
And basically, in the meeting, he just went, sorry, did I say ritual? I meant a woman with big tits. (laughs) And they commissioned it. (laughs) (laughs) That's brilliant. Rock Profile, which we made for UK Play. And then they did it on BBC Two, didn't they? And then we did edits. So then we did the second series. I was asked to put together and take from the second series, basically remove all the music and then join two episodes together for a half mm-hmm. hour. Yeah. Anyway, when that went on on BBC Two, I'm convinced it was the cheapest comedy show I've ever been on. <laughs> that may be true. I, I, it was so cheap. I mean, we really were making up for nothing. You, know, you read like biographies of the Pythons and stuff like that. And mm. like this idea is that they would go to like whoever it was, Dennis Mainwaring, one of those kind of people, mm-hmm. and pitch a show. And, and he'd go, mm, I don't know, sounds a bit odd. Well, I'll do six and let's see. Yes. And that would be it. Now, we, the hoops you have to jump through. So the closest I ever came to that was Jim Moyer, mm. who Jim Moyer had been head of light entertainment TV. Yeah. He left that TV job and became head of Radio 2. Mm-hmm. And I had made a pilot of a show called Jammin, which mm-hmm. ended up running for quite a while, a kind of comedy music show. So I went into this meeting with Jim Moyer. It really was like two minutes in the room. He, I went and he went, you like your show, make more in good health, get out before I change my mind. <laughs> And that was it. That's amazing. Um, yes. Different era, though. You just don't get that now. We did Little Britain on Radio 4, mm. and then we started talking about it for TV. And we went for a meeting with Stuart Murphy, who yeah. was running BBC Choice at the time, mm-hmm. but it was going to become BBC Three. And Little Britain actually ended up, they showed like a pilot of it on the launch night of BBC Three. So we went for this meeting with Stuart Murphy, and we walked in, I, I'll never forget this, all open plan, and they had this enormous whiteboard, and it said at the top, it had like a woman's name, it was something like Claire. She's 23, and this is what her job is, this is what her salary is, and she's got mostly male friends, she's single, got, but she does have quite a few male friends. I've I, I, I written this whole thing, and, I, and David Williams and I were like looking at each other, going, what the fuck's that? And... Stuart Murphy came and joined us. And I said, what's that? He said, oh, that's our viewer. <laughs> so basically, they've done that market research and boiled down their viewers to this one person. And he said, like, when we're in the office and we don't know what to do or what we should do, and we look up and go, would Claire like it? You know, and, and kind of that, that's there on the wall. So mm. it keeps everyone's mind focused. What about having stuff for a range of people? Mm-hmm. Why have one person in mind? Mm. It's the strangest thing. One of the things I really miss about TV, and I've thought about this a lot over the last few years, right, is that, so we mentioned before Paul Putner. Now, Paul's about 10 years old as me, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe not quite 10 years old. But um, I've got another good friend of mine I work with a lot called Bill Matthews, a TV producer. He is, yeah, he's over 10 years old as me. And, you know, people I've hung out with, we've spent a lot of time chatting about TV and movies, and we liked all the same stuff, and we bonded over that that kind of stuff. I remember like when I met Mark Gatiss for the first time, we were like, mm. chatting and bonding about all the movies like, and the horror films and all these things, like, Carry On and Old Doctor Who. And what it struck me is, I was thinking about this recently, is that it actually doesn't matter the fact that we're like 10, 20, whatever years apart. Because back in those days when there was just either three or maybe four TV channels, mm. you could only watch what was on. Yeah, And because they just repeated the same stuff, 
over a long period. All the TV references, all those Hammer Horror films that they showed on TV late at night, yeah. I've seen and, and you've seen. And all the carry-on films I've seen, you've seen. All the Bond films <clears> I've seen, you've seen. But when I look at my children, they just don't have any of that anymore. First, because there's just so much choice. You know, they're watching TikTok and YouTube videos and yeah, social media, right. but they're watching streaming channels and all these things. It's such a shame when you lose that shared collective memory. Yeah. But it's a shared collective memory. It's not only just the same for people of exactly the same age. It's a huge breadth because basically the same TV was on for 25 years. Yeah. You didn't have a choice. It's not like you could, you know, 10 o'clock comes, and now on BBC TV, a choice of viewing. BBC <laughs> One, you can watch this documentary. On BBC Two, we have Dracula, Prince of Darkness. And it's <laughs> it's just like... This is what you'd watch, what you were given. That's it. I think it's a shame that that's gone. Well, uh, most people can't afford to watch most of the television that's on. I've actually been in a number of television programmes over the last couple of years that I've never seen. Because they're on streaming services. I don't have Apple. I don't right. have Disney+. Plus. I don't yeah. ha just don't have them. I can't be asked to turf out another £500 a year to have television that I don't have the time to watch. Well, that's the thing. I never watch any of it anyway. That's the mm. thing. Just never watch it. Just to, and actually, I'm some. I, I I just end up always just watching. I've got a long list of stuff that I'd like to watch, but I will just end up rewatching the things I've seen many times before. <laughs> they, 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 it's kind of like I suppose comfort eating. I've always liked the idea of the Netflix watch list. That I feel you should be able to apply that to other things in life. Mm -hmm. That it, it's kind of like. I don't care that I've not seen all these things. As long as I've put them on my watch list, it's like I've made the effort. <laughs> so you, should, you should just have like, oh, have you read Finnegan's Wake? Yeah, it's on my read list. Uh, <laughs> and, and fine. I, I know I'll never, of course I'll never get round to it. No. But it's there. I'd much rather just rewatch Doctor Who or, or Bond film. <laughs> it's very true. When you haven't even got the time to watch things that you're in, yeah, yeah. you sort of go, do you know what? I think I may have fallen out of love with television. Yeah. So, yeah, I was, I, was, I was happy to put TV in the time capsule. It's in there. Good. So we've only got one thing to talk about yes. now, which is the thing you want to put in there and forget. Forget, right. So I, I get a little bit of thought about this difficult one, what I would really like to forget, and I've decided to go with my anus. <laughs> Needs probably a little bit of explanation. Just a bit. But not too much explanation. No, That's please. That's the key. Yeah. Um, just a little explanation. So I would say... I. Thank God I haven't been blessed, not had um, reached this age of midlife without any major illnesses so far. But I am have had a phenomenal number of minor ailments. You know, like if you're really seriously ill, people give you a lot of sympathy and you'll get meal rotors and help and all kinds of stuff. But there should be, if you have a sufficient number of minor ailments together, <laughs> I feel you should get. Like a point system. Yeah, like, come on, I know I haven't, yes, admittedly, I haven't had cancer, thank God. But athlete's foot, <laughs> terrible toothache, and hemorrhoids. And it is the hemorrhoids that I wanted to talk about, mm. but not too much. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I, I quite happily see my anus going. Um, I have, tr yeah, you don't get any sympathy. No. It's given me grief over the years. Right. The bum. Um, and um, I went, actually, I did go to the doctor, and this is, oh, God, this is very strange. Sent me to um, the urologist to check, because obviously if you do have, because you, you can have, now, again, let's be clear, minor ailments, you can have serious problems in that area, 
uh, bowel cancer, prostate cancer, what have you. Mm. Um, so the doctor was a little concerned, so sent me to a urologist to rule out more life-threatening problems. Uh, so I went to the St. John of St. Elizabeth in St. John's Wood, and this was a while ago when I actually used to ride a motorbike. Mm-hmm. So I've turned up for the appointment with like my helmet on and stuff, and so I go in to see the urologist. We have a very brief bit of small talk about what kind of bike you're riding, blah, blah, blah. Small talk out of the way. I'm lying on the bed with my trousers around my ankles <laughs> and my underpants around my ankles. And he's holding my meat and two veg and, and about to examine me and lubing up his finger. Mm-hmm. And he says to me, so uh, have you ever been whacked off? <laughs> I, said, I said, you what? He said, have you ever been whacked off? Uh, and then I kind of looked out and saw my helmet and went, I want my bike. He went, yes, your bike. Your bike. I said, your bike. And I went, yeah, no. And he went, oh, okay. And then we just moved on. And to this day, I have wondered whether the urologist was making a pass for me or not. My, it's quite telling. I went home and told my wife. She went, absolutely no way. But um, I don't know. You never know. I told Matt Lucas, he said, look, just uh, take it where you can get it. But um, I don't know. I, I, you know, I don't know. <laughs> How extraordinary. Yeah. So at the end, he said, look, you're, you're, it's fine, nothing to worry about. But any problems ever, give me a call. Here's my private number. Yeah, I was a little bit um, <laughs> perturbed by this. So for that reason, particularly mm. for that anecdote, I'm very happy to put my anus in the time capsule. Very good, yes. What do you think? Let me ask you your opinion. What do you think was happening there? I can't believe that he used that phrase, innocently. Exactly. Mm. That is exactly what I think. It's one thing saying it, have you ever been whacked off? And it's kind of go, oh, I meant your bike. But literally while holding my penis. Yeah. That's not how you describe an accident in a motorbike, is it? Exactly. I've never heard anybody say, I was riding along, and before I knew it, this car came along and it whacked me off. Exactly. It hit me. Not exactly. It wouldn't. You wouldn't say it. Well, I'm, I'm with you. <laughs> I'm, you know what? It, was, it was quite a while ago, but I think I'm going to report him now after this call. <laughs> Let's see if we can take this man to court. I don't know. Mm. There you go. So, I don't know. It, it's given, it has given me grief over the years. Am I more backed up than the M25 or, <laughs> um, or I can't stop running? I'm of Ashkenazic Jewish descent. Mm-hmm. I have a Ashkenazi tummy. And us Ashkenazi Jews just are kind of intolerant to everything. <laughs> you know, you know, dairy, wheat, the, everything gives me a problem. <laughs> just, oh, it's just relentless. So let's put, put the anus. Okay, it's the first anus that's gone into a time capsule. It may be the last, but you never know. Probably the last. Probably yeah. the last, yeah. But it's in there. Actually, it's really lovely to see you. It's been lovely to talk to you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, yeah. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Ashley Blaker. Thank you for listening. I hope it's persuaded you that subscribing to this podcast would be worthwhile. And if you do, you'll get all new episodes as they're released. Please also click on five stars as a rating. Thanks. And you can even write a small review if you fancy on some podcast players. Do follow me and my time capsule on social media. We're both there separately, so that's two things to follow. We're very friendly and we try to reply to all comments and questions. 
You can download or stream the theme tune by Pastor P's music on Spotify if you like it. This was a cast-off production for Acast, and it was produced by John Fenton Stevens. There are also links in the description of this podcast to everything Ashley is up to and to Acast Plus, so do have a look. And I will be back with another My Time Capsule very soon. I mean, some people say that quality is better than quantity. But then again, quantity is quite good as well, isn't it? I could give you the best pea in the world, just one of them, but I bet you'd prefer a pile of them, and quickly at that. So, yes, quality is quite nice, and so, quaintly, it's quantity, especially quickly delivered quantity. But the best thing, obviously, is a large, quick quantity of quite good quality. I'm sure you'll acquiesce. Right, thanks for that. Uh, The letter Q on my keyboard was sticking, but that's loosened it nicely. Bye. Oh yeah, sorry, before I go, uh, the treasure is buried in... (laughs) 